Welcome back. Uh, we will look at 1 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 14 this evening, and we'll see how far we get into chapter 17. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have not left yourself without witness, both in the creation and in the revelation of the new creation. And as we look at the account of the protological David again this evening, we pray that we may not miss the invitation to see the demonstration and anticipation of the eschatological David in him. And encourage us as we're drawn into that drama, into the life of him who is greater than David and is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray these things in the name of David's Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, last week, as I indicated, I did most of the talking. Uh, this week, I'm going to welcome you to the dialogue. And uh, so <clears throat> we'll see uh, whether you learned anything from last week. I'm going to struggle along with uh, <clears throat> some of the uh, questions on the uh, outline or the handout, <clears throat> fill in the blanks, that type of thing. <clears throat> and the first thing that we want to ask about this section for Samuel 16:14 to23, <clears throat> is there a narrative or literary unit here? And not just because it may have a paragraph mark uh, in your Bible, uh, <clears throat> is there something here that suggests to you that there is a, a narrative unit other than the fact that that may be the arrangement in your English Bible? And if so, uh, what is it? So let's begin, first of all, with the question, uh, is there a narrative unit here? And Margaret is nodding her head. And so since Margaret has the floor, <coughs> what is the uh, narrative unit? <coughs> what would you call it if you see one there? All right, now you're not picking up on what I taught you last week. Uh, so I'm going to move on to somebody else. Marge, what, where, what, what's the uh, narrative unit? How do you know there's a narrative unit here? And she says she doesn't know either. So Art, it's up to you. Well, it begins and ends with an evil spirit. Begins and ends with an evil spirit. You're, you're very close, okay? You're very close. You have the spirit there. <clears throat> that is correct. All right. So uh, now that it begins and ends that way, what do you call that type of a narrative or literary device or structuring paradigm? What do you, what's the label for that? You have a word to call the kind of thing you just recognized? Yeah, my wife asked me tonight what was inclusive. And and she primed you for the the uh, question that she didn't want to answer. Now, Marge, what's an inclusio then? That's what I asked for. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a question because last week you said these are 
All right. This this can be called an inclusio because, as you notice, it begins and ends in similar fashion. And Art has pointed out the word spirit that is common to the first verse of this pericope or this section. And spirit is common to the last verse of this uh, section. So an inclusio is a framing device or a word that occurs at the beginning and end of a narrative unit that is exactly the same and causes an enclosure. That is, it, it includes between itself the meat of a particular narrative. You might think it as the icing between two chocolate Oreo cakes. Okay, so the 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 heart of the goodie uh, in between the two outer uh, limits is the meat of the story, the meat of the drama. You can call it an envelope device, but it must mark the beginning and ending in a parallel fashion with phrases that drive you inside the inclusio to the narrative heart of the account. So, inclusio is not just a Bible device or something you find in the scriptures. And in fact, inclusios are very common in the Old and the New Testament alike. So you might keep your eyes open for them. Uh, hint, hint, you may find some of them uh, along our path in First Samuel. So the inclusio includes within itself, it, it, it limits because it includes within itself what we call the heart of the narrative drama. Now, I used the expression framing device there. Okay, Another way of describing an inclusio is to call it a literary frame or a framing device which features the narrative inside the borders of the frame. And so we can say that between spirit in verse 14 and spirit in verse 23, we have a kind of framework or border frame and we're going to be the narrator is driving us inside the frame by bracketing off the uh, limits of his narrative account and finally there are some people that like to call this literary device a bookend pattern so uh, because like the boards are on a book cover uh, the narrative is between the covers it's between the boards so any of those expressions are getting to what we're talking about here, inclusio, framing device, or bookend pattern. Yes? Okay, so I have a question. Uh, because we're looking at text and translation, obviously we're going to lose some of the Hebrew inclusio. Very good. But um, just looking at verse 14, you have the Lord departs, but then you also have on 23, the spirit would depart from him. So does that then also become, is that, do translators recognize these inclusios? Do they try and preserve them when they're translating text? And then can we rely on uh, the, the translations to help us see inclusios? You can't rely on your English translation. And your, your question about whether or not uh, <clears throat> these are based upon the original Hebrew or Greek text is quite perceptive because a genuine inclusio, a true inclusio, a true framing or bracketing paradigm, a true bookend device must be based on the original text. Cannot be based on a thematic, okay, or an English equivalent. It has to come out of the writer's original writings. So, if we're going to find an inclusio here in the 
1 Samuel 16, uh, 14 to 23, we want to ask the question that was raised. What about the Hebrew text? Well, the Hebrew text in verse 14 has the word spirit, as Art pointed out. And that's in verse 14, and we're going to label that the A part of the inclusio. It also has, as was pointed out here uh, by Kristen, the word departed. We're going to label that the B part of the opening inclusio, opening part of the inclusio in verse 14. And down in 23... This is what the Hebrew has. The Hebrew has departed spirit. Now, we're going to label this B prime, and we're going to label this A prime, because it's parallel to the opening of the inclusio in verse 14. Now, if we note that the original Hebrew is structured this way. The narrator has placed his parallels in this fashion. What has he done? What do we call this? It is a chiasm, correct. So if I draw a line between B and B prime and connect the two departeds, and I draw a line between A and A prime and connect the two spirits, I have kind of like an X, which is equivalent to the Greek letter chi, which stands for chiasm, a reverse paradigm. Now, the narrator, obviously, in doing this, has done it intentionally. He's reversed the order of spirit and departed at the opening of his, in the opening of his inclusio by flip-flopping it chiastically at the end of his inclusio. That reinforces the fact that we have a narrative unit, but it also raises the question of what's the purpose? What's the theological point of the chiastic reversal? All right, I'm going to hold that in abeyance just for a minute, but I want you to note that when you have the advantage of reading the original Hebrew and Greek text, then you can pick up something that you can't see in the English, namely the fact that you have a chiastic reverse inclusio. Footnote here. Um, one of the essential reasons for you as the lay members of the church insisting upon your pastors knowing the original biblical languages is specifically so that they can see things like this and work with them on the text. Now, they may not be able to see all of them, but nonetheless, that they are capable of recognizing them because they are capable of reading the Hebrew and Greek text. If a pastor has not learned in seminary how to read Hebrew and Greek, he cannot understand the mind of the author in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in laying these devices down. Now, you may say to me, yes, but this is somewhat esoteric and technical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's neither esoteric nor technical. It's a lot of fun. And it's the kind of detective work that a pastor ought to be doing in studying the text. In other words, in having his mind possessed of the original text inspired by the Spirit. 
Because if the Holy Spirit took the time to inspire the writer to do this, he did it so you can benefit from it. It isn't just something for egghead theologians like Denison. It is something that has some very practical literary and narrative character for your own meditation, devotion, <laughs> instruction, and learning. Yes, learning of God and why his mind works the way he does in order to lay these things down in his inspired scriptures. Well, <clears throat> let's go back to last week's discussion to kind of uh, investigate why the narrator has placed a chiastic reversal in his inclusio. The theme of the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16 was the election of David and the rejection of Saul. The election of David, the rejection of Saul. He's anointed by Samuel as the replacement for King Saul. Now, here in verses 14 to 23, the narrative drama of David's election and Saul's concomitant rejection progresses. It develops. It unfolds further. There is a narrative flow here. So, so Saul's rejection spirals downward in verses 14 to 23 into psychological terror, to which he is judicially abandoned by the visitation of an evil spirit. Now, notice I use the phrase, he's judicially abandoned to the evil spirit because of his sin against God. He has rebelled against God adamantly on two occasions prior to chapter 16. And so this is not some innocent, poor, tragic king who's being troubled by a demon this is a rebellious king who is being judicially abandoned to the fruit of his own rebellion, namely temporary demon possession. God does do this. All right, now the motif of reversal, election reversed in rejection, is dramatically featured here in this unfolding part of the second uh, section of chapter 16, in the spiritual reversal, the spiritual reversal framed by the reverse chiasm. The spiritual reversal is that the Spirit of God departed from Saul and the evil spirit departed from Saul. So the parallel is suggesting something quite theologically significant. And I'm going to elaborate on that in detail as we go along. But now you're clued in to why there's a theological pattern within this chiastic reverse inclusio. All right, now, <clears throat> let's, yeah, you can diagram that on your uh, sheet if you wish to fill that out. Uh, let's take a look next at verses 13 and 14. As you skim verse 13 and you look at verse 14, is there any relation between those two verses. 
Now, once again, you're on the carpet uh, this week. Uh, Kay, is that a look of all-knowing there? Very good. Very good. That's exactly what we wanted. Okay, notice what Kay pointed out there. The phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, and then came upon David, verse 13, and then the phrase, Spirit of the Lord, departed from Saul, verse 14. <clears throat> the parallels between Spirit of the Lord are exactly the same in those two verses. All right, now, Kay didn't know whether there was a technical term for that. Is there a technical term for that, Bob? Robert? Uh, I can't think of one. Okay, uh, Richard, you were here last week. Bill? I'm not sure if it's technical, but is that a hook? Yes, it is a hook phrase. It's a hook pattern. You'll notice that at the end of that previous story, that previous narrative of David's anointing and election, we have this ending phrase, Spirit of the Lord. At the beginning of the next narrative portion, we have the same phrase. He hooks the two narratives together. It's like a seamless garment. In order to make you prick up your attention to the fact that I'm moving on, I'm going to draw your attention to a phrase I leave off or a word I leave off at the end of this pericope, and I'm going to bring that phrase right back into the next pericope so we have a harmonious unfolding uh, d dramatic development, literary or narrative development. Uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons for noting this kind of thing is it drives the nail into the coffin of liberal cut-and-paste higher criticism, where the liberals want to say, oh, no, some other writer or some other redactor or some other editor wrote this pericope and he stuck it on. No, he wouldn't have had that much brilliance to look for the same phrases and pick up the same kind of vocabulary. No, this is coming from the pen of a continuous narrative uh, uh, dramatic writer. So we look for that for what we call this hook pattern or hook phrase, and how then do we relate that to the narrative structure? Once again, we have an ongoing or unfolding narrative account. But in verses 14 to 23, we are confirming or ratifying by that hook linkage the elective anointing of David and the rejective departure of the Spirit of the Lord from Saul. Notice, he's advancing the drama of the David narrative by saying not only was he anointed, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So, he's setting up again this downward spiral of the decree of Saul, of the, of the life story of Saul, which is going to be the, the story of the rest of 1 Samuel, the downward spiral of Saul, and the upward spiral of the career of David. The reverse Narrative shift is also a reverse redemptive historical shift. The one who possesses the spirit, notice verse 13, notice it very carefully. Notice verse 13, the one who possesses the spirit from that day forward, from that day forward is contrasted 
with the one from whom the Spirit comes and goes. The Spirit comes and goes, even being displaced and replaced by an evil spirit. I want you to take very serious note of that phrase in verse 13, that David possessed the Spirit from that day forward. That is never said of Saul of Gabeah. Never. And the fact that the Spirit of God comes and goes from him and an evil spirit comes and goes from him is indicative that he never possesses the Spirit of God or that evil spirit, at least in this world, with respect to the evil spirit. All right, I'll elaborate upon that uh, later on. <clears throat> now, next, uh, we have this phrase, light verter. Light verter. And uh, <clears throat> let's uh, put that question to Ling. What's a light verter, Ling? A repeating verbal motif. Repeating verbal motif. Uh, that's not really a translation of light verter. What language is that, Christina? It is Das Deutsch, yes, all right. So, and what does it literally mean, Christina? Is to leave? Lead. So, a leading word. All right, all right. Well, we lose something in the English uh, vernacular translation or how it's being used uh, literarily as a keyword. Uh, but uh, you, you might, we could say leading word or keyword. Uh, we'll, we'll take uh, Christina's uh, uh, exegesis of that. Uh, she, of course, uh, knows a little bit about German, as some of you may know. And uh, is there a light verter in this narrative or literary unit, verses 13 to 14? Anyone? Ling, you're smiling. You've got, you got a smile of all-knowing back there. What is it? Uh, I hear somebody saying it? Spirit. spirit. Very good, Margaret. Yes, it is spirit. Now, I've given you the Hebrew for it. Remember, you read Hebrew from right to left, and you pronounce that Hebrew phrase, that Hebrew term, ruach. Ruach, with a guttural ch on the end of it. Okay, it even sounds a breathy, doesn't it? Ruach. <laughs> All right. So, uh, it literally means breath or spirit, and you'll find the word Two times in verse 14, once in verse 15, once in verse 16, and three times in verse 23. Now, you'll pick out the two that are obvious in verse 23. But there is a play on the root, ruach, in verse 23, which is translated in your English Bibles, recover or refreshed, but it is the same Hebrew cognate. So there are seven occurrences of the key word or leading word spirit in this section. It dominates the pericope, dominates the narrative. All right, now on your outline, I've uh, suggested some literary relational paradigms which give you a full descriptive outline in a literary narrative uh, point of view of the whole chapter, 16, 1, 2, uh, 24. 
Uh, actually, that should be 14 to 23 uh, on the second line of the first one, not 13. The secret choice of David by Samuel, verses 1 to 13, and then the public choice of David by Saul in verses 14 to 23. Or another way of looking at the narrative relationship between the two pericopes, the divine selection of David and the royal selection of David. God selects him in the first part of chapter 16, and Saul, royal King Saul, selects him in the second part of chapter 16. Now, um, any questions to this point or any comments you may have? Yes, Robert? That uh, word, like murder, would that be similar to like motive in a German opera? Uh, a motif is not necessarily a word, it's a thematic development. So uh, that's one of the reasons I was quibbling with Ling's answer back there. A motif is more than a single word. Okay? Now, the word may be expressive of a motif, and motif may develop out the word, but they are described in literary terms as light motif or light verter, okay? a leading motif, and you're right about an opera motif, but you see it's kind of a thematic, it's bigger than just one word. It's a thematic, uh, 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 dramatic quality that, that wends its way through the uh, opera's uh, acts. It's also true in music. You can find a motif or a light motif that's repeated, you know, in a symphony. It starts the first movement and it'll weave its way through all four movements. You have a four-movement symphony. <laughs> all right. Any other questions? Well, let's look at the, some of the literary paradigm. Last week I gave you an outline of literary structure beginning with setting or a, a, or a location, the setting of this pericope, verses 14 to 23, is uh, it opens with Saul. Where is Saul? Where, if we're on location of Saul, with Saul, where are we? All right, we go back to verse uh, 34 of chapter 15, and Saul is back in his hometown which is Gebeah. All right, so we open in verse uh, 14 with Saul at Gebeah, and then we have a scene shift. Where does the scene shift to? Anyone? Bethlehem, right. It shifts to Bethlehem, just like it did in last week's pericope, in verses 1 to 13. It starts out in Ramah, and shifts to Bethlehem. Here it starts out at Gabeah, shifts to Bethlehem. And where does it end up in verse 23? Returns to Gabeah. All right. So we have a kind of inclusio of location beginning at Gabeah, although the term isn't used. Ends in Gabeah again, although the name isn't used. And it shifts in between to Bethlehem. Notice how the narrator keeps his spotlight on Bethlehem in these opening scenes of David's life. The significance of Bethlehem of Judea. Ah, all right. Now, what's the occasion for this pericope? Verses 14 to 23 again. The occasion is the removal of the Spirit of the Lord from Saul and the visitation of an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. Plot development. We do have a plot development here. 
This is an expanding plot development on verses 1 to 13 in the previous unit, adding the impermanence of the Spirit of the Lord with Saul, as well as the impermanence of the evil spirit from the Lord upon Saul, none of which affects the spirit of evil in Saul by nature. In other words, it doesn't change him. The evil spirit troubles him. The abandonment by the spirit of the Lord does not alter him. I'll make my case for that in a minute, but I want you to notice that the impermanence of the spirit, both the Holy Spirit of God and the evil spirit from God, the impermanence of the spirit suggests something about the nature of Saul's spirit. All right. Now, there is characterization here. There is characterization of Saul, of David. In fact, one of the most magnificent character sketches in all of the Bible is found in verse 18, where we have an elaborate characterization of the shepherd of Bethlehem. And finally, Saul's courtiers or his counselors are characterized in this pericope. <clears throat> now, one of the features that I added <clears throat> to the standard narrative analysis paradigm of scene, setting, location, uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 occasion, plot development, characterization, etc., was a redemptive historical drama. <clears throat> the redemptive historical drama which unfolds here in verses the 14 to 23 is the intrusion of the Holy Spirit into the arena and confrontation with the anti-spirit. The intrusion of the Holy Spirit into the arena and confrontation with the anti-spirit. That is also an intrusionary motif, which I will elaborate upon shortly. All right, let's go back to the light verter, to the term ruach, or spirit. The characteristic of the Holy Spirit with respect to Saul is its transience, its impermanence, its coming and going, its short-lived or ephemeral activity. It is merely temporary. It has only a temporary role in the life of Saul. Now the narrator makes this very clear through several parallels, parallels which reinforce and substantiate his account of the transitory effect of the Spirit of God in Saul. In 1 Samuel 10.10, 10, and again in 1 Samuel 11.6, 10.10 and 11.6, the Spirit of God comes mightily, as the New American Standard Version reads, and I'll give my usual footnote, the New American Standard Version of the Bible is the most accurate translation of the Bible into English, that has ever been made and still remains the most reliable.
translation because it is based on the best original manuscripts and does not mess around with the translation of the text by dynamic equivalence or by making commentary on the text. It translates the words as they stand on the page of the Hebrew and Greek text. That cannot be said of the New International Version. It cannot be said of the Common English Version. It cannot be said of the Revised Standard Version. It cannot be said of many of the other modern versions. They are adding commentary when they translate. Therefore, I prefer the New American Standard. I know that bothers some of you, but nonetheless, that's what I prefer, and this is why I prefer it. If the New American Standard says there is another possible translation, it puts it in the margin, which is exactly where it ought to go, not in the text as a primary reading. So, the New American Standard says in 1 Samuel 10, 10, and 11, 6, that the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul. I'm going to quibble with the New American Standard in translating that word mightily, because I think it's better rendered from the Hebrew lexicon, Suddenly, the Spirit of God came suddenly upon Saul. So, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. So, the Spirit of the Lord that came suddenly upon him departs from him in verse 14 of chapter 16. This means, QED, conclusion, the Spirit of God is not, the Spirit of God is not, a permanent possession of Saul. It comes and goes, suddenly rushing upon him and then departing from him. The narrator parallels these in order to make his theological point of the impermanence of the spirit coming upon King Saul. Now, he does the same thing in parallel fashion with the evil spirit. An evil spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul in verse 14 of chapter 16. Then in verse 23 of this same chapter, the same evil spirit from God departs from Saul. The evil spirit from God is not a permanent possession of Saul. It comes and goes, coming upon him and departing from him. Notice the parallel symmetry in the Holy Spirit of God and in the evil spirit from God. Come and go, willy-nilly, do not remain. All right, the parallels underscore in duplicate fashion the temporary visitation of the Spirit of the Lord upon the depraved personality of Saul. In like manner, the temporary visitation of the evil spirit from the Lord upon the depraved personality of Saul is uh, paradigmatically demonstrated. In other words, it is a parallel uh, a, a literary pattern, which is a parallel theological pattern. The depraved personality of Saul by nature is temporarily affected by the Spirit of the Lord, but with no permanent effect, no long-lived effect, no eternal effect, no perpetual effect. 
the Spirit of God does not, and I'm going to use a Johannine word here, the Spirit of God does not abide with Saul. It suddenly endows him with some special capacity and then abandons him once more to his native depravity. By the same token, the evil spirit from the Lord affects the depraved personality of Saul, but with no permanent effect, no long-lived effect, no eternal effect, no perpetual effect as yet. As yet. The evil spirit does not as yet abide with Saul, it suddenly terrorizes him with fear, melancholy, depression, psychotic mania, and then abandons him once more to his right mind. The coming of the evil spirit upon Saul is the intrusion of what his rebellious nature will inherit, if and when he enters the arena of the permanent and abiding, eternal and perpetual terror of the spirits of evil in hell, with no intermission, no coming and going, no periods of peace, wellness, being in his right mind. The temporary presence of the evil spirit in Paul is an intrusion and hellish anticipation of being permanently possessed by the principalities and the powers and the spirits of the rulers of the air in unremitting evil. Saul receives a preview Saul receives a preview of the torments of hell by the visitation of these evil spirits. They are not permanently set upon him, and that they are not permanently set upon him is a token, a token of God's common grace benevolence to him. But they are a real foretaste of the demons of hell who will torment and terrorize the spirits of the damned permanently, eternally, perpetually, with no intermission. The evil spirit visitation is a backsided slap upside the soul of Saul. Saul, repent and cry out to the living God that he pour out the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit permanently and perpetually, yea, eternally, taking up residence in your soul, Saul, and so abiding may remain in you never to leave you or forsake you. Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the Spirit of God? Why do you not flee to the Lord, Saul, 
the Lord of all grace and power, when the evil spirits trouble you, Saul. Why do your courtiers look for musical therapy and not recommend to you theological therapy? Why do they not tell you, Saul, to seek the Lord that he may deliver you from the evil demons that assault you? Why, Saul, will you not cry out, beating importunately upon the gates of heaven, saying, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, O Lord. Why won't you say that prayer, Saul? Why, Saul, why will you die? When you have tasted the visitation of the Holy Spirit, and know how much better off you were with him than with the visitation of terror from the evil spirit. Why, Saul? Why will you die? The tragedy of Saul, the tragedy of the naturally depraved, evil heart of a man and woman who will not, will not, you will not come to me that you may have life. You will not. You prefer your own evil spirit. Because Saul has no heart, to cry out to God in any other way to save face before Samuel, before his army, before the people, Saul will not cry out to God for the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit. Saul's religion is the religion of pretense. He's a faker. He's a counterfeit. He's a pretender. It is not the religion of a regenerate heart. Notice the contrast which the scriptures declare with respect to the heart, the life possessed by the permanence of the Holy Spirit. Here is what the Bible says about a heart which is permanently possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit abides with you and shall be in you. Jesus' words, John 14, verse 17. The abiding of the Spirit is a permanent, non-transient, perpetual indwelling. He remains with the reborn sinner as an eternal transforming gift. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, the apostle declares that in the one born of God, in the one regenerated, the seed of God abides in him, remains in him, will never leave him or forsake him or her. 
And such a one with the abiding seed of God within, such a one reciprocally abides in God because he has given us his spirit, 1 John 4.13. Regeneration is a permanent transformation of nature. Rebirth is a permanent transformation of nature. It is a permanent abiding Remaining, that's John's vocabulary, that's Jesus' vocabulary. It is a permanent, abiding, remaining work of the Holy Spirit. King Saul had no permanent work of the Holy Spirit. Never had a regeneration of his sinful and rebellious heart. Now, you may cite to me 1 Samuel 10, verse 9. 1 Samuel 10, 9, where the text says, God changed his heart. God changed Saul's heart. Or as the margin reads, God changed for him another heart. And you may insist that this text indicates that Saul was regenerate. Saul was born again because the margin says that God changed his heart. Please note that this passage in 1 Samuel 10.9 occurs in the sequence of Samuel's anointing of Saul after Saul has hesitated, protested, because of the insignificance of his family, and after Saul has been told that he will join the prophets and prophesy with the prophets. Saul had no heart for becoming king, no heart for joining the prophets, so God gave him another heart changed his heart to accept the crown of Israel and to join the prophets and prophesy. So that as you read the rest of that verse in 1 Samuel 10.9, it indicates that after God gave him another heart, all these signs came about on that day. That is, that Saul did prophesy. Saul did enter into the kingship. On that day, Saul's heart was changed from a man looking for lost donkeys, 1 Samuel 9, to king of Israel. On that day, Saul's heart was changed from one who never associated with the prophets to one about whom it was said, What has happened to the son of Kish is Saul also amongst the prophets. 1 Samuel 10:11. Dumbfounded audience, I can't believe that this guy is with the prophets. He's certainly never prophetic. They knew him well enough. This change of heart is not regenerative. It is merely reflective of Saul's change of attitude. 
taking up the crown that he hesitated to take and uttering prophecy because he was overwhelmed by the endowment of the Spirit temporarily. But you may say to me, is not prophesying a gift of God the Holy Spirit? And I answer you, yes, prophesying is a gift of God the Holy Spirit. Well, then you may say to me, surely Saul was regenerated because he prophesied by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that your argument is that whenever a person prophesies, it is a sure sign that the Holy Spirit has regenerated their heart. If he prophesies, he's regenerated. He's been born again. QED. What about Balaam? What about those who will say to Jesus on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Matthew 7, 22. And Jesus will turn and say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. What will we do with Judas Iscariot? Who possessed the charismata of the Spirit as his journeying with the 70 disciples two by two on their miraculous healing mission testifies. Prophecy, speaking in tongues, miraculous gifts, none of these are evidences of regeneration. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, though you have all of these and have not love, Real, passionate, sincere love for Jesus Christ. You are a tinkling cymbal, a noisy gong. You are an empty pretender. King Saul can prophesy with the prophets and still go to hell with the prophet Balaam. Judas Iscariot can work miraculous cures with the twelve and still go to hell. Jesus calls him a son of perdition. That is a final judgment upon that human being. Jesus, the son of God, says he went to perdition. The transience of the charismatic gifts, the transience of the charismatic gifts mean that they can never be the testimony to regeneration. How many people caught up in the fervor of the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s are no longer even in the Christian church, let alone professing Christ. How many thousands? I got caught up in that on the periphery of it because I wanted to see what it was like. And I know some of the fakers who were part of it who are now confirmed atheists and rebels against the gospel of Christ. They claim to speak in tongues, cast out demons, work all kinds of mighty miracles. No. That is no infallible sign of a regenerate heart. For you see, the unregenerate, as we have listed, Balaam, Judas Iscariot, and those in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapter 7, may exercise the charismatic gifts for a time. 
as the Spirit of God comes and goes upon them as it did upon Saul, comes and goes without any permanent change of their heart and soul. Only impermanence, transient, temporary impermanence remains. When the Spirit of God departs from Saul, departs from Balaam, departs from Judas Iscariot. Let me pause there for a moment and ask if you have any questions to this point. Robert? It would seem to me then, not only can the Holy Spirit indwell an unregenerate individual, is that what you're saying here? I would not use the word indwell. He can charismatically endow them for a time, but he will not take his residence within them. So indwell is a residential term, which means he's coming in to make his home, to abide, to remain, to use John's vocab, Jesus' vocabulary. And then it seems to me from a purely Calvinistic point of view, the first question you did ask, why didn't Saul turn around after verse 14? He can't after verse 14 from a Calvinistic standpoint, because unless the Holy Spirit touches you, you won't regenerate. Correct. You won't even. Correct. Therefore, when the Holy Spirit departed, that was permanent. He had no chance after that point. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, God is confirming in a, shall we say, narrative style, an ongoing narrative style, that the Spirit, that His Holy Spirit has departed from Saul, and we're going to have to wait to read the rest of the story to see if the Holy Spirit ever revisits him. Now, knowing the end from the beginning, you're right. But here we have another confirmation of this rejection motif that is opened up in verses 1 to 13. It's being ratified by the departure of the Holy Spirit from him. So, unless God sovereignly determines to change his heart by sending his spirit to indwell him, which is not going to happen in the rest of the Saul narrative, and we're going to see that when he descends to the pit by going to the witch of Endor the night before he dies. He's at the bottom of the ladder. He's depending. He's one step out of the brink of hell at that witch's door. And he doesn't care about it, you see. He doesn't care. He's just completely unconscionable about it because he breaks his own rule that witches and sorcerers should have been put to death, which scares the bejabers out of that witch. She's scared to death that she's gonna, he's going to string her up because she knows who he is. All right, anyway, uh, there was another question. Yes. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that um, one of the problems with is that the Holy Spirit doesn't appear in the Old Testament very often. Um, and so how do, how do people who suggest that deal with the fact that the Spirit is definitely present in David and definitely present in Saul going and coming? I mean, how- On the question of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, I suggest a classic 19th century book by Octavius Winslow called The Work of the Holy Spirit. Margaret, you had a question. <laughs> it's an excellent book. Margaret? Well, the life of Saul reminds me of the life of Samson. We know in Hebrews that Samson was considered righteous. But he presents very like Saul, and the Spirit came upon him too. Um, yes. Um, you'd have to come to my historical books course to hear me make that case. But my point is, 
Anybody that's on the roll of Hebrews 11 is a person that is defined by the first verse of the chapter. They possessed faith, which was the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. That is perfectly evident in Samson's death. He dies. He dies saying, God, help me this one last time. He cries out to God and gives his life as a sacrifice for his nation, which is the reason that the faith of Samson in his death is the faith that he never had in his life, but it is the faith by which he perceived things invisible and the substance of things which he hoped for. To be revenged upon his enemies, yes, but also to declare his own faith as a deliverer, a, a judge, a delivering judge of the people of God. So. He was also given to those people to be, start the release of Israel from the Philistines. Yes. I understand that, but it's an amazing picture. Read Milton Samson Agonistes. Uh, you'll have a greater appreciation for Samson and his death. But lots of lots of other uh, commentaries as well. But nonetheless, you, you have to come to grips with the character of the faith that everyone in that list has. And Samson's on the list. Saul is not. Was there another question? It's what I call the eschatological aspect of faith. He actually perceives the heavenly blessing in his in his faith. Ling? Ichabod. Okay, but in prophets later. In. In the prophets later, with the fall of the nation. Uh, I'm not. I, I don't know a passage, but uh, uh, you know, if, if if you come up with a text, I'll address it. So. That ring a bell with you, Pete? No. Bill, that the spirit departs from Israel at the uh, uh, collapse of uh, Jerusalem and so on. Go ahead, Link. It's not the sport, spirits of glory, I'm sorry, with Ichabod. Yes. It can be a reference to the glory spirit, yes, can be. Tabernacle. Correct. It's another temporary, it's another temporary element, you see, in the spirit's temporary endowment, okay? He comes and goes in, uh, in terms of common benevolence. But he also works in regenerative permanence. So then in the New Testament, we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Correct. And that's permanent. Correct. As opposed to the tabernacle temple of Israel. Correct. But there are even temporary visitations of the Spirit in the New Testament with the charismatic gifts and when the endowments of the, of the gifts of the Spirit for particular purposes. So this, this issue of the character of the Spirit coming and going boils itself down to, has the Spirit permanently indwelt me? That's the issue.
Well, this permanent indwelling in the Old Testament, Psalm 51, where David says, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He has a permanent possession of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want God to deprive him of it. So he's conscious of it. But that has to, that has to be based on Christ. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Retroactively, it's based upon the person and work of Christ. That is correct. As a person. Yes. David as a person. Yes. As an individual. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm being gagged, okay? I have to, have, to sh- have to shut this off for a minute and uh, let you take a break. Or was that a question? Okay. Five minutes. Oxygen. Take our places, uh, please open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> this theme of the transitory nature of the influence of the Holy Spirit is also the theme of Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. I'm going to read that passage so it is in your minds. It is a much discussed passage and it does apply to our discussion about the temporary relationship of the Holy Spirit. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Now this much-discussed passage has the story of the Exodus generation as the background to a narrative of temporary and transient experience of God's blessings. The generation which exited Egypt under Moses did not enter the promised land, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness because of their unbelief Psalm 95 is the poetic rehearsal of this tragedy where God declares, I swore in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. Psalm 95:11. The 95th Psalm forms the theological and rhetorical backdrop to Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 as its citation, that is, the citation of Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 testifies. As it was possible to be delivered from bondage in Egypt and still not enter God's everlasting rest in heaven, 
We are instructed that external privileges do not necessarily carry with them internal renovation or regeneration. Being a member of the Exodus entourage was no indication of regeneration of heart. How could their carcasses have dropped in the wilderness? Hence, as the members of the Exodus parade made their way in the wilderness and lightened by the flaming pillar, tasting the heavenly manna bread for sustenance, joining in the revelations of the Holy Spirit through Moses, as Nehemiah 9, verse 20, and Isaiah 63, verse 11 testify, relishing the good things of the word of God, experiencing the supernatural powers of the coming age, for example, the plagues upon Egypt, the dividing of the Reed Sea, the streams of water out of the rock in the desert, yet falling away at the wilderness of Paran in disbelief of Joshua and Caleb's positive report, all of which echoes Psalm 95 once more and underscores the adage, all Israel is not of Israel. External membership in the nation of Israel is no indication of membership in the Israel of God, the Israel of regenerate hearts. Hebrews 6, 4-6 is not talking about receiving regenerating grace and losing it. Hebrews 6, 4-6 is talking about receiving temporal blessings and benefits, but with no inner transformation of the heart and soul. Every element of Hebrews 6, 4-6 is a reflection of the experience of the Exodus generation, and once again testimony to the transitory nature of God's external blessings even to those who are never born again. They, too, may partake of the Holy Spirit, as Saul did, as unbelieving Israel did in the wilderness, temporarily, not permanently. I would suggest to you who have difficulty with this passage, Hebrews, 4, Hebrews 6, 4-6, to read it in its context. All the way from the third chapter, the writer of the Hebrews has been building on the imagery of the Exodus motif. Because the Exodus motif is the motif of sojourners of the former age, the Hebrews of the past age. So the epistle to the Hebrews is the epistle to the sojourners of the coming age, the age to come. This is an Exodus motif epistle. And he goes on from chapter 6 to talk about the priesthood of Christ, to talk about the tabernacle imagery of Christ, to talk about the sacrificial imagery of the crucifixion of Christ. This epistle is shot through with Exodus imagery. 
And therefore you read the passage which talks about being enlightened in the light of the Exodus pillar of fire, of tasting the heavenly gift, in, a being, in terms of tasting the heavenly manna, of being made partakers of the Spirit, in that they partook of the revelation that the Holy Spirit gave to them at Mount Sinai, as Nehemiah and, Ezra and Isaiah testified, of tasting the good word of God. They did relish the word of God because they heard it, and of experiencing the powers of the age to come. Miraculous gifts and powers were poured out upon them. And so... You do not need to get trapped in the Arminian obfuscation about this passage if we remember the distinction between external workings of the Spirit and internal workings of the Spirit. External, temporary, and impermanent working, and internal, permanent, and everlasting working. Pete. That is confirmed by verse 9 in Hebrews 6. We believe better things you think things that pertain to salvation. Thank you. All right, turning now to verse 18 of 1 Samuel 16. We have here, as I mentioned before, one of the most thorough characterizations of a figure, a character figure in the Old Testament. And I do not think that it is coincidental that the person in question is the protological David. He is physically attractive, handsome, in fact. I remark that the portraits of Jesus which portray him as handsome, the most famous, the one developed by the Jesus freaks of the 60s and 70s, in which the face of Jesus was placed on a wanted poster. And underneath was written, reward for capturing him, eternal life. Such <clears throat> portraits of the eschatological David are in harmony with the physical attractiveness of the historic David. Would the son of David, God's perfect human being, be ugly? I think not. Hence, the Isaiah 53, verse 2, comment that he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him is not a reference to his physical appearance, but rather to his unattractive lifestyle, no place to lay his head, mocked and scourged and crucified. I do think Jesus was good-looking, like David. David's characterization continues in noting that he is talented, especially skillful on the harp, as many of the translations read. Now, here I note that the instrument indicated by the Hebrew word in our text is probably not a harp, but a lyre. And you will notice on your handout sheet examples of liars from ancient archaeological finds. Every picture on that sheet is from an archaeological excavation. Liars played by the hand as verse 23 of 1 Samuel 16 indicates. 
so that perhaps we need to alter the words of that lovely Negro spiritual, Little David, play on your harp, Allelu, to Little David, play on your lyre, Allelu. Second Samuel 23.1 describes David's musical talents, labeling him the sweet psalmist of Israel. Numerous psalms contain the title, A Song of David. Most notably, four of the famous Psalms of Ascent. Now, the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 through 134. But specifically, Psalm 122, 124, 131, and 133 are labeled a Song of David. The prophet Amos, in chapter 6, verse 5, recalls David as one who composed songs. This talent for music soothes the savage breast of Saul, at least for a time. Again, the impermanence of temporal pleasures or pacifications. David is described in this verse as a man mighty in valor, a reference to his courage in defending his father's flocks from the marauding bear and the lion. He will allude to this in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 to 37. The mention of him being a warrior in verse 18 of chapter 16, I take to be proleptic. His wisdom is extolled, especially in speech, a quality which is transparent in the Davidic Psalms. More than 80 of the Psalms in the Psalter are traced to David. But above all, you will notice in that 18th verse, the Lord is with him. His spiritual relationship with the Lord is singular. Notice the contrast with Saul. The Lord is not with Saul, having departed from him. The contrastive elements of this unfolding narrative of David from his elective anointing to his being given the possession, permanent endowment and possession of the Holy Spirit. That the Lord is with David will be a phrase repeated numerous times in First and Second Samuel. I will give you a few examples. I am not going to take time to list all of them, but they are numerous. For example, chapter 17, verse 37, as he prepares to meet Goliath, the Lord is with him. In chapter 20, verse 13, when Jonathan recognizes that the Lord is with his bosom friend David, In 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 10, where God endorses David's expansion of Jerusalem and his kingdom under the Lord's presence. The Lord was with him. And finally, 2 Samuel 7, 9, in the covenant God makes with David and with his house, the I am with you presence is underscored covenantally. 
The formula God with him is also proleptic. It anticipates God with us, the Emmanuel motif of the history of redemption. God with David the first is prophetic of God with us, the Emmanuel scion, David the last. Watch for the Emmanuel motif in the Old Testament. Now, the psychological state of Saul is quite likely one of depression and melancholy, exacerbated by fear, induced by the evil spirit. He is terrorized into a frenzy of panic. This psychosis will also unfold further in the downward spiral of Saul's career. The very next time David comes to Saul's house in Gabeah to play his lyre, chapter 18, verse 10, Saul will attempt to murder him. Saul descends into the mania of paranoia. The evil spirit here is not a euphemism for mental illness. This is a positive commission from God. An evil spirit is directed from the Lord to trouble and terrify Saul. The same positive dispatch of evil is found in Paul's New Testament remarks delivered up unto Satan. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, in the case of the incestuous man. 1 Timothy 1.20, in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander. This is a positive, not a mere permissive, determination of God. Now, not all depression or melancholy is the result of demon possession, as Psalm 42, verse 5 clearly indicates. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? My soul, thou art downcast. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? The, soul? the psalmist is discouraged. He is in a state of melancholy. He is perhaps even depressed. And no evil spirits are involved. It is just spiritual depression which can come upon believing persons. Music may indeed be part of the therapy, but therapy may necessitate a thorough medical checkup and even psychological expertise. I do not here mean to minimize spiritual counsel and the encouragement of the congregation of the saints. All of these elements may be brought to bear upon cases of spiritual depression in the believing assembly. In 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23, David has entered the public arena of the anti-spirit. Possessed with the Holy Spirit from the day of his secret messianic anointing onward, he openly encounters the antithesis of himself, the anti-king possessed of the anti-spirit. But he enters that arena as the true, though hidden, 
servant king. He humbles himself to serve the false king whom he displaces, serves him with compassion and soothing music as a restorative to refresh him and bring him healing for a time. When the true king comes, the evil spirit departs. The songs of the anointed of the Lord drive him away. When the eschatological David comes, the evil spirits depart. No demon possession in Christ Jesus. For those in Christ, no demon can get in the door of the soul. For Jesus is truly the stronger man. He is indeed the mighty one of valor. Though hidden, he is nonetheless anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And he gives the Spirit as a permanent possession, even as he gives himself as a permanent servant to those troubled by the kingdom of Satan and the terror and darkness of the principalities of the rulers of the powers of the air. The shift which occurs with the election, anointing, and public appearance of the spirit-possessed David is prophetic, even incarnationally anticipatory. It is anticipatory of the shift which occurs with the election, anointing, and public appearance of the spirit-drenched eschatological David. Any questions about those comments, Margaret? Can you break down proleptic? Proleptic means it's somewhat prophetic. It's anticipatory. So reference to him being a warrior is anticipatory of what he's going to become. Because I asked that question because... I think it's a Greek word. Oh, Prolepsis. Because a, bamboo, a running bamboo is called a lepto. Yeah. Bamboo and a clumping bamboo is a packing bamboo. So I'm just wondering if that lepto meant like a running ahead or, or anticipatory. I'm, I'm going to have to do my lexical work. Uh, okay. uh, Margaret, I apologize. I, I, Ling, does it sound Greek? <laughs> it sounds Latin. Okay, all right. The fact that it ends in an S-I-S suggests to me that it's Greek, but at any rate... Yes, it's come from prolepsis, okay? So it, it's, it's root, it, the root is, uh, it's a cognate of prolepsis. Okay, S-I-S. So, but anyway, we'll, we'll get out our etymological uh, 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 OEDs and we'll uh, take a look at it. Yes, Lee. It could very well be analeptic as well as proleptic. 
Analeptic means looking backwards. Proleptic means looking forward. Uh, but uh, that's what I take the, uh, the the term to be here. But uh, it is possible, as Ling points out, that it's looking back to something that has been, uh, shall we say, accomplished in David's life because of his genealogy, his descent. All right, now we'll take a look at 1 Samuel 17 uh, for a few moments in closing tonight. We can't make it all the way through this chapter. Uh, But let's begin with the scene or setting. And uh, you may want to have around you the uh, maps that I and pictures that I have uh, included in your packet with the actual uh, map that has the uh, places labeled on it in distinction, uh, first of all, from the photo of the Valley of Elah. Now, uh, geographically, let's get in mind where this story occurs. It's not too far away from Bethlehem, which you see on the right-hand side of the map, which, of course, is just south of Jerusalem. And one of the things that is uh, mentioned in this narrative is the city of Gath. And Gath is one of the five famous Philistine cities, Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Gaza still remains today as the head of the Gaza Strip. So it is the only name there that still uh, has survived 3,000 years. But those five cities of the Philistine nation are the famous five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, as they're called. The five famous cities of that nation. Now, you'll notice that the photograph uh, displays uh, in, uh, in a picture the relationship between the position of Soko, which, as you notice on your map, is to the south and east, and Azeka, which is to the west and slightly north. So the photo is being taken from Azeka in the west, uh, looking eastward and slightly southward back to Soka. And you'll notice that the, you are looking across a broad valley. Uh, this is, in fact, a photograph from uh, modern-day Israel, and that broad valley is the Valley of Elah. And uh, uh, nicely on this photograph, the uh, supposed positions of Saul's camp and the Philistine camp have been pointed out as two raised hills or mountains, as they are called in the Hebrew text, although, as you see, they are not the Cascades or the Olympics. So when you read mountains in Israel, when you read that word in a biblical text, it's like mountains in western Pennsylvania. It's like the Appalachian Range or the Laurel Highlands or that type of thing. They're about two to 3,000 feet high. But there are mountains that high in Israel and Palestine, but not uh, 10,000, 14,000 foot skyscrapers. All right. So that gives you a kind of visual uh, portrait of uh, the valley where this uh, conflict is going to be uh, dramatically played out. <clears throat> now, in this valley, Valley of Elah, last summer, not the summer of 2009, summer of 2008, a remarkable discovery was made by a team of Israeli archaeologists 
they discovered a fortified city which they date from 1000 to 900 BC, that is, from the time of David through the time of Solomon. Now, that uh, <coughs> fortress remnant, which has uh, very uh, well-defined walls and gates, is on one of those hills that is on your photograph, but it's better to look at the actual map because <coughs> that discovery was made six and a half miles east of Gath, just about at the place where those two dark lines form a point uh, beyond the word Azeka. So if you see that point, that's where this uh, uh, remnant, that's where this uh, uh, find was uncovered. Now, it's called in Arabic, Kirbit Kayafa. Kirbit Kayafa. They're not quite sure whether it is equivalent to the term Shemarim, which occurs on your pictorial map, or Sha'araim. Uh, some of them are arguing that that's the case. I don't think right now that it fits, but I'm not an expert in this. Nonetheless, it is an interesting discovery which has directed attention back to this valley where David and Goliath faced off against one another. Now, they had another season this past summer, but the finds have not been published on the Internet yet. This find that was announced in the summer of 2008 has made the headlines all over the world. It has already been written up in one of the great uh, archaeological journals, the Biblical Archaeology Review. It is a very preliminary finding, but it looks like it is extremely important and may in fact be another chink in the armor of demonstrating the historicity of David and his monarchy. For in fact... If the dating is accurate, this little uh, town or this little fortified city was on the western border of the tribal territory of Judah, which means that David conceivably made it a fortress protection site or fortress monitoring site on the border of the Philistines. <laughs> Consequently, you might uh, be aware that there's some very interesting archaeology going on in this very valley where David fought Goliath even today. Now, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 17 <clears throat> describe the deployment of the Philistines at Soho. They have invaded Israel and the territory of the tribe of Judah in verse 1. In other words, they have penetrated into the center of the nation of Israel. Saul is in the valley of Elah, drawing up his army over against the Philistines in verse 2 of the text. The Philistines are on a mountain, or actually a hill, as you can see from the photograph on one side, and Israel is on a mountain or a hill on the other side with a valley in between them, as verse 3 indicates. Now, notice what happens as you read the narrative and as you look at the map. In verse 1, your eye moves from the Philistines between Soko and Azekah. 
You look at the Philistines and your eyes move on the map from the one place to the other as the Philistines position themselves between those two locations. In verse 2, your eye follows Saul as he positions himself over against the Philistines. And so you look at the location of Saul's camp and then your eye moves over to the location of the Philistines' camp and your eye moves back and forth. In verse 3, your eye follows the location of the Philistines on one mountain and the, and the nation the army of Israel on the other mountain and the valley in between. So once again, your eye moves back and forth between the armed camps on their logistical centers, the mountains or the hillsides in which they're bivouacked, and your eyes are moving back and forth across the valley between. And as your eye moves back and forth, a champion comes out from the Philistine army Verse 4, virtually all of your English Bibles translate the word, there are actually two words here, the two Hebrew words translate the word champion. Champion does not quite catch the dramatic flair of the Hebrew text here with this phrase. The phrase in Hebrew is Ish Habenayim, which literally means the man in the space in between. The man in the space in between. Now, the narrator has used the deployment of the two factions in the opposing geographical settings to draw your attention to the space in between, to the valley in between. This is a masterpiece of narrative and literary art based upon geographical location and military tactic. From the location of the Philistine army on one, my, uh, one mountain, your eye drifts across the valley to the location of the Israelite army on the other mountain when suddenly your attention is arrested by a figure moving from the Philistine camp to the state base in between. The person in the space climaxes the unfolding three-verse description of the spatial parameters. It is the history of the person or persons in the space in between that transcends the geography, act more fundamental than space, history more primary, primary than geography, but the narrator nonetheless draws us slowly and deliberately into this historical, this redemptive historical drama by foreshadowing the space, the location into which will step the personal protagonists of his narrative. Verse 1. 
the broad panned sweep of the camera between Soko and Azeka. Verse 2, the more narrowly focused camera uh, directed to the valley between, the valley of Elah. Verse 3, the more pointedly antithetical postures of the armed principles, standing, gazing, mutely gazing at one another across the space in between. What a master craftsman this author is. Verses 1, 2, and 3 establish the primacy and centrality of this space, the space in between. And they do so, those three verses do so in terms of the protagonists positioning themselves vis-a-vis the space in between. It is in this space that the narrative drama will be played out. But none of the characters who occupy this space has, by the end of verse 3, yet been introduced, nor does he position himself standing forth mutely in the space in between the silence of this drama thus far is deafening. No dialogue. No word of speech. Resolution of this drama will occur in the space The narrator foreshadows the denouement as he features the arena when a lone figure advances to the space between gigantic lumbering colossus and bellers forth rupturing the deafening silence. The Antichrist has entered the space in between. This monster antagonist of Israel, antagonist of the God of Israel, antagonist of the people of Israel, antagonist of the kingdom of God, antagonist of the king of God's people, of the Christ, the anointed of the Lord. This Antichrist stands in the space in between to curse the elect of the Lord. When this space is occupied by another lone figure, the Messiah, the Christ, the elect shepherd king of the Israel of God. When antagonist meets protagonist, when Goliath meets David in the space in between, a protological drama in the history of redemption will be played out, played out in the space in between. And the spectator's eye will flit back and forth, forth and back, from one side to the other, from one figure to the other, focusing on the man in the space in between. 
antagonist, protagonist, spectator, you are all riveted on the space in between. The narrative cameo in this drama of the history of redemption comes down to the space between a protological narrative drama. In the eschatological narrative drama, the eye of the spectator is riveted upon the space in between. The space in between earth and heaven. The space in the arena lifted up from the ground. The space suspended between earth and sky. The lone figure of a man hangs in that space in between Christ, Messiah, elect of the Lord, King of Kings. And in that space, he bows his bloodied head to the antagonist, the cosmic antagonist in the history of redemption, bows his head to bear the curse of the Antichrist in the space in between. Fixed, nailed up in the space between the cosmic heaven and earth is the eschatological David. Make this chapter a tale about slaying all the giants in your life and you are asinine. Asinine. This is foolish. Eisegesis. An application run amok because it has no point of context with the drama of the narrative. It is imposing your agenda upon the text and making it say what you want it to say when there is nothing of what you want it to say in the passage. The narrator opens the passage by giving you the clue to the drama. It is the meeting between the Christ figure and the Antichrist figure in the space in between. That's what the story is about. It is not about Jack the Giant Killer. We're about Jack and Susie, the Sin Killer. No. It is about David and his Lord Jesus. You have any questions about that? Margaret? Well, I have a question. Not a question. Well, sort of a question. Um, I'm hearing you say that the unit before, is verse 18 the center? Would you call it the center of uh, that particular... 
you could say that there is a thematic a thematic hinge around the characterization of David in verse 18 in chapter 16. But there is no chiastic center here. Okay? So in other words, the chiastic structure is found in the reverse inclusio at the beginning and end. In my study of the text, which is not infallible, and you know, in looking at the Hebrew, I don't see everything, and in reading Hebrew commentators, I don't see everything that they don't see everything either. There is no other pattern that seems to move easily from 14 down to 17 and then from 19 down to 23, leaving 18 as a kind of central hinge point. You know, as you listened to me before, that a true chiasm does have a hinge point, and it's obvious, okay? There's nothing obvious here. I admit I may be missing it, but I, so to date, I haven't seen it. But you could say that thematically, it is. It's moving around the characterization of David. Nice. I like that. Thank you. Any other comments or questions? All right. Just in the last few minutes we have, uh, let's take a look at uh, what your outline uh, describes as, once again, the uh, structural uh, uh, characteristics of uh, Chapter 17. And uh, let's see if you've learned anything tonight. All right, uh, we're asking the question, is there a narrative or literary unit here in 1 Samuel 17? And I'll give you a moment just to scan or skim over the chapter and see if you see anything that suggests there is a narrative or literary and unitary device here. Clue. Look at the beginning and end of the chapter. Always look at the beginning and end to begin with and see if you pick up anything. All right, notice the phrase in verse 1. Their armies, or may be translated their camps. And notice that very same phrase in the last verse, verse 53, their armies or their camps. The Hebrew word is the same, even though your English word, your English versions may have translated it differently. It is the very same word in Hebrew. So we have once again an inclusio word, a verbal inclusio that brackets First Samuel 17. Now there is a larger narrative frame which brackets First Samuel 16:1 and First Samuel 17. 58, and that is the phrase Jesse the Bethlehemite. So this, shall we say, two-chapter sequence is framed around Jesse the Bethlehemite and the son of Jesse who comes out of Bethlehem. So we still have this emphasis upon Bethlehem and its significance in the narrative flow of the history of redemption. Now, one more thing about Goliath's characterization. In order to figure out uh, Goliath's size, we need to know 
how long a cubit is. There are still some scholarly arguments about the length of a cubit. The general consensus is that a cubit is a foot and a half, 18 inches, which would make Goliath nine and a half feet tall. Now, uh, there was a photo on the Internet today about a Turkish fellow who is eight feet one inches tall, and he's looking for a wife. I wish him well. Uh, there have been very tall individuals in the history of the human race, uh, some of them even up to nine feet tall. Some of them have suffered from a disease of, of the pituitary gland called acromegaly, which, which the pituitary secretes too much growth hormone, and uh, people spurred up uh, in height to uh, pretty significant uh, to, to pretty significant heights. Well, Goliath is uh, a giant by any uh, description, and probably nine and a half feet high by the traditional measure of the cubit. The second issue is the weight of a shekel. Notice that his uh, uh, armor is described as weighing 5,000 shekels in verse 5, and his uh, the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. A shekel is approximately 11.33 grams. Now, when you multiply all that out, the armor that he wore weighed about 125 pounds. And the... The, the spear, the head of the spear, weighed approximately 15 pounds. Now, you can imagine a person with the size and strength to hurl a spear that had on its head something about the size of a weight of a 16-pound shot put. Very close. 15 pounds on the end of the spear. This is on the end of his javelin, okay? Okay, this is something he obviously hurls around like uh, like you hurl uh, uh, arrows and so on and so forth. All right, so uh, he is uh, a, a, an intimidating force. The weight of what he carries, uh, the armor plate that he's got on him, is a, a, a significant uh, testimony to his size and his power. All right, I'll leave the narrative effect uh, verses 4 to 7 for next week, and it will give you something to chew over as you read through the rest of the chapter. Um, I doubt that we'll get much beyond uh, this story, but uh, we may, so you may want to venture into chapter 18 uh, before you come back next week as well. Any other uh, parting questions or comments? Scott? Since you're dealing with the relationship between the previous chapter and this one, could you just briefly comment to us on the liberal critical view that these that chapter this, this chapter 17 could not come after 16? The reasons why in response to that? Yes, it's argued that chapter 17 uh, has to precede chapter 16, or it's out of place because Saul knows David in the pericope that we discussed, verses 14 to 23 in chapter 16. My answer to uh, why it is here uh, <clears throat> that chapter 17 follows uh, chapter 16 is that it may be 
that uh, Saul recognizes David in 16, but the effect of his uh, psychosis does not cause him to remember or recognize David when he reappears uh, to uh, bring his brother's sustenance and hears Goliath's challenge. Uh, uh, beyond that, I don't have any uh, answer uh, to the critics except to uh, fall back upon the inspiration of Scripture. I don't think it's out of place, though I may not be able to solve uh, all of the uh, fine points of detail as to why it's positioned uh, where it is. I will have a comment next week upon the uh, statement of Abner uh, at the end of chapter 17 uh, about uh, identifying him as Jesse's son. I don't accept what the liberals say about it, and I'm not bothered by it that much. So, there... Uh, that's worth throwing into the hopper, Margaret. Well, thank you for your attention again, and Lord willing, see you next week for the rest of David and Goliath.